This year marks 30 years since Nelson Mandela was released after 27 years in prison. His closest comrades, known as the Rivonia Trialists, as well as a few other long-serving political prisoners, had been released four months before that. One of them was Andrew Mlangeni, one of the last two surviving Rivonia Trialists. When we go to Bolzumov, it was like a five-star hotel. Bread was fresh. And water also, fresh water, not brackish water. In this episode, he recalls the long separation from his family, the harsh conditions on Robben Island, and how, when the offer of release was first mooted, most of them decided to reject the offer in spite of Mandela's persuasions, until they could all be certain that it meant the release of all political prisoners and the return of exiles. This is journalist Pippa Green conducting and narrating the interview. In 1964, after a nine-month trial, 10 of the accused were sentenced to life imprisonment. In his statement to the court, Andrew Mlangeni told Judge Cortes Tevet that the resources of South Africa could be used for the benefit of all who live in it. South Africa, my lord, is a very rich country. The resources could be exploited for the benefit of all who live in it. This government and the previous government have exploited not the earth, but the people of various racial groups whose color is not white. But the government daily makes suppressive laws in white parliament, which laws are aimed at suppressing the political aspirations of the majority of the people who have no say. I know that you, my lord, have to administer the law But when you do so, I ask you to remember what we, the Africans and non-white people, have had to suffer. That is all I have to say except to add that what I did was not for myself, but for my people. Yet in spite of his conviction and courage and that of all the Ravonia trialists, prison, especially in the first decade, was exceptionally hard, both physically and emotionally. Hard physical labor in the lime quarry, a sparse diet, especially for African prisoners, cold showers, hard beds. But the worst was the long separation from their families and the helplessness to do anything about the hardships that befell all of them. You know, when, when you are sitting, when you are alone in your cell, you are already in single cells. Everyone had his own cell. When you come back from working in the quarry, you are locked in your own cell. And it's then that you start to think, did I do the right thing? My joining the organization and uh, supporting the decision to take up arms to defend our people, all those things come to your mind. You think of your, your family. You think of your wife and children. Our children were still young. We, some of us were still also young with our young wives. All those things come to your mind. You say, did I do the right thing by joining the organization? When Andrew Mlangeni went to jail, he had four children. The oldest, Maureen, was a teenager. The youngest, Cello, was only eight. Maureen and her sister, Sylvia, two years younger, had gone to Botswana to do their schooling there and live with their maternal grandparents. But what was most difficult for me was not to see my children grow up. 
I knew how my wife was suffering, how she was persecuted by the police. Every time she got a job, in three months, the special branch would be knowing where she's working. And they would go to her employer and say, you have employed the wife of a terrorist, a murderer, a rapist, all the bad things about us. You must get rid of that person. Employers were scared. And my wife says, in two twos, I'll be called to the office. And uh, I'm told that I've lost my job <laughs> without any reason being given. June did not last in a job more than three months before the police would stymie her employment. Fortunately, when the South African Council of Churches found out how, as Mlangeni put it, she was suffering with four young children, it intervened to make her position a little bit more secure. When the South African Council of Churches saw how much she was struggling and suffering and being harassed and persuaded by the police, persecuted by the police, uh, I think it was Desmond Tutu at the time, who was mm-hmm. the secretary, come, come and work for us. They gave her a job. And she worked there for 10 years, worked there until I came out of prison. Oh. Yes. It was several years before Mlangeni could see his children. The prison regulations stipulated the children under 16 could not visit the prison. Both his older daughters were in Botswana and their schooling was somewhat erratic. Both had children relatively young. They moved from Botswana to Plumtree in Zimbabwe with their grandmother. So I first saw them when they came back from Zimbabwe. When they were already women and had children. That was 1974. Maureen was 25 and Sylvia 23. They had grown up almost entirely without their father. Contact with family was so fundamental to the prisoners' well-being that for years they had agitated and petitioned to be moved closer to their families. One of our biggest demand was that we wanted to be imprisoned near our homes so as to make it easier and possible for our people to come and visit us. Robben Island was far from Johannesburg. We got to put in a plane or a train. When you come to Cape Town, you struggle for accommodation. This was before they acquired the hot house. Uh, And uh, if you don't know anybody, you must sleep somewhere and then the following day you'll go to Robben Island. In March 1982, three days after the wedding of his younger daughter Sylvia, which of course he had not been allowed to attend, Mlangeni's normal prison schedule and that of several of his fellow prisoners was abruptly disrupted. When we came back from the quarry, lime quarry, after we were locked up, 
I remember I had just finished eating my dinner, if you want to call it that way. I was standing next to Madiba. My cell number was number five. Madiba was number seven. And uh, Manda Masonto was, I think, number nine. And number 11, I think, was Governor Mbeki in that role. I had the door, the big gate, open outside. So when I peeped through the window, the window that uh, looks into the exercising ground, I saw people throwing in cardboard boxes. Oh, what's happening? Four, five, or six warders came in and brought these cardboard boxes. Inside there was section. And the first person to open for was myself, number five. Next door me was uh, PAC, Jeff Masemula. They jumped this house, I cell, came and opened my cell and threw in the, the cardboard boxes. I said, Nageni, pack up your stuff. I said, why? They said, pack up your stuff. You are being transferred. Being transferred, where to? We don't know. Only Pradura knows. He said, we must pack your stuff. You have been transferred from here. For a moment, Blangeni thought one of the prisoners' demands to be imprisoned closer to their families was being met. But this was not to be. So we got into the truck and they drove. That night, we escaped down. We don't know where we're going. Just see the light. Next thing, we arrived at Portsmouth Prison. At the time, the question of negotiations was not even in the air. In fact, says Mlangeni, they were told that the four of them were the cause of, quote, all the problems on Robben Island. They said, we, the four of us, are the cause of all the problems on Robben Island. You see, they said we are the leaders and everybody in the main sections Whatever action they embark upon is as a result of our instruction from our B section. So remove these leaders and hopefully things will become normal. They were absolutely wrong because everything we did were followers of the main sections. Everything they did that site, we also had to do at this site. If they go on a hunger strike for whatever reason, we are expected to do the same this site. But at least the conditions were much better in the new prison. Baltimore was like a five-star hotel. <laughs> we are now already getting bread. Now even ourselves, the black people, were given bread. The bread was fresh, also as a result of the pressure from the International Red Cross. When we go to Portsmouth, bread was fresh. On the island, the prisoners showered in the salty, brackish water and were given a small bottle of fresh water for drinking and washing in the cells. We appreciated that very much. And water also, it was fresh water. 
not brackish water. Mm. In 1986, Nelson Mandela was admitted to a private hospital in Cape Town with TB. That was the first time the word negotiations began to be whispered. Mounting pressure, both internal and external, had divided the ruling National Party. It was also the first time the offer of the release from prison, at least of Madiba's comrades, was mooted. Kobe Kutsie was one of the enlightened prolegte. Kobukutsi at the time was the minister for prisons. So he visited Madiba uh, in the hospital and uh, said to Madiba, Madiba, we would like to release your comrades, meaning ourselves. Not the entire prison population, no. We, we, we would like to release your comrades. But... You are going to remain behind. We'll give you a nice place where you can stay and your family and children can also visit you there. Not something like uh, Sobukwe. Yours is a very modern place and uh, we'll, we'll keep you there for some time. Madira thought it was a good idea. He said, well... If my comrades are released, they are going to join the forces that are demanding the return of the comrades in exile. They are going to join the forces that are demanding the release of all political prisoners. It was a good idea, Madiba thought. And uh, as usual, he said, well, I can't take a decision on this. Uh, I've got to inform them. Even the authoritarian P.W. Boerter, then president, was beginning to see the deadly impasse could not continue. When Madiba was then released from the hospital, they decided not to bring him back to us, but to put him in a cell in, in Portsmouth. Yeah. The authorities agreed to his request that he consult his comrades on the offer of their release. So they went to see him in his cell in Polsmore. We were all excited and happy that he had recovered mm. from, from what he was suffering. So he conveyed this to us. Comrades, I've been approached by Minister Kubikutsie and he has made this offer that uh, the government wants to release you, but they are not going to release me uh, together with you. The reason being that they fear, it says they fear that if you are released together, especially you, Madiba, the country will go up in flames. That's the way they use Mandela's comrades felt they would be released as, quote, some sort of feelers, as Mlangeni put it, but they were unhappy about leaving him behind in prison. We rejected that offer. Madiba tell them that we don't accept the offer. All of us were in the so-called Rivonia trial. All of us were sentenced to life imprisonment. If the government wants to release us, they must release us all at the same time. Otherwise, we are not accepting the offer. But he was terribly disappointed. 
Mandela believed if they were released, they could go join the forces who were demanding the release of all political prisoners and the return of exiles. But for that to happen, they would have to wait another three years. That was the fourth part in a series on Andrew Mlangeni, one of the last two surviving Ravonia trialists. I'm Pippa Green. In the next part, we look at the excitement surrounding Mlangeni and his comrades' freedom after 26 years in jail and the wait for the release of Nelson Mandela. This podcast was researched and compiled by journalist Pippa Green. Additional readings from the book The Backroom Boy, Andrew Mlangeni's story, were done by the author of that book, Mantla Matebule. That book is available online via the big retailers and witspress.co.za. The podcast was edited and packaged by me, Jean-Michel. And for more interesting podcasts, please visit lifepodcast.fm and subscribe.